0: to the Renew.org Real Life Theology Podcast. I'm Cammie, and today we're listening to the second part of David Young's sermon series, Invincible, Standing Strong in the Faithless World. In this episode, David talks about how our battle is spiritual. It's not about what politicians say. In his words, no matter what the symptoms are, the disease is spiritual. Now more than ever, we need the words that David is bringing us, so allow them to bless you as you go about your day. Several months ago, the executive director of Agape, a Church of Christ ministry with whom North Boulevard has partnered for more than 30 years, sent out a letter explaining to various supporters that Agape had been receiving a grant of $50,000 a year since 2014. But because Agape was unwilling to change its positions on sex and gender, those who had sponsored the grant had decided to cease giving the grant to Agape. The private foundation, they certainly have the right legal right uh, uh, to uh, maybe even an ethical right to support their own values, but it tells you that something has changed in America when a Christian organization is penalized for supporting Christian principles in early two thousand twenty one The California Department of Education proposed an ethnic studies model education curriculum, I should say that addressed what one of its authors called. The evil of theocide, which he explained, is the coming of the Christian religion to the shores of North America. The curriculum includes, and I'm not making this up, the worship of Aztec and Mayan idols. Videos have surfaced showing school officials in the state of California and the public school system leading students in the worship of idols. In the spring of this year, Brigham Young University won several unexpected basketball games during the NCAA playoffs. While some fans celebrated the Cinderella performance of BYU's men's basketball team, secularists around the country began to write articles in which they made credible arguments, I mean serious arguments, that BYU should be excluded from the NCAA because it does not support America's pagan sexual ethics. In the summer of 2020, the mayor of New York City banned churches and synagogues from meeting, issuing an angry threat. To arrest Christians who would meet on Sundays against his mandate. At the same time, the mayor encouraged and personally participated in massive protests that undermined every mandate he had leveled against churches and synagogues. In May of 2017, the Battle River School Board outside Edmonton, California, ordered a Christian school with whom they had had a contract to cease teaching Bible verses that might be considered offensive to anyone living in the area. In January of 2021, a Catholic bishop, Kevin Duran, tweeted in support of All of Life a tweet. Here's an excerpt of the tweet. He made this statement, assisted suicide where it's practiced is not an expression of, the, of freedom or the dignity of life. Twitter removed the tweet for and I quote, violating community standards, though Twitter allowed the same day thousands of threats, vulgarities, and misrepresentations of the Christian faith. In 2019, a major United States presidential candidate made the argument that the federal government should strip churches that do not support America's pagan sexual ethics of their tax-exempt status allowing churches that do support pagan ethics to keep their tax-exempt status. Something is going on in America, as I mentioned last week. The elders brought the subject up, and I started a conversation about how do we deal with what appears to be an increasingly hostile North America. Now, I wanted to point out that there appear to be at least four different directions or from which this hostility comes, or maybe I should say four different venues in which it comes. Disinformation and propaganda, intimidation, shaming, discrimination and silencing, and coercion and penalties are even beginning to be used against Christians in North America because of our views. In fact, there are areas, I want to identify four areas that I think are particular conflict between Christians and secular American values. There are more, but I just will list these four because these seem to be the most um, visible right now. One of them is our view of religious freedom. One of them is our view of the sacredness of life. That is, Christians have always stood for the life, the respect of life for everyone, including the unborn, has always been our position. Christian views of marriage and the family and Christian views of what's called soji issues. That is, sexual orientation and gender identity issues. So, what's going on in America? I wanted to make this statement last week, and I hope I made it effective. Let me say it again. This appears actually to be just part of what appears to be human nature. That is, majority cultures tend to harass minority cultures. And for a long time, Bible-believing Christians were a majority culture in the U.S. We are not anymore. We're now a minority culture. Secularism, an aggressive secularism, is now the majority culture, which means that secular, uh, sort of secular, uh, aggressive secularism, I'm having a hard time getting get my words together, is beginning to treat Bible-believing Christians the way that majorities tend to treat minorities in every culture all through time. I wanted to make the case last week that the starting point for our dealing with what might be an increasing hostility is for us to make the decision once and for all here and now that we're going to do what Jesus says no matter what anybody else says and no matter what anybody else does. Now I want to make that statement because if you have not made that firm commitment nothing else we do is going to matter. When you are baptized You made the statement that you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. You died to the old self and you put on Jesus. Once we make that declaration, from that point forward, all whether questions are over, whether or not I'll obey Jesus, whether I'll yield, whether I'll compromise, whether I will stand firm, those questions are done. At this point, it's only a question of how do I stand firm? How will I obey Jesus? How will I be faithful? And so Jesus is really clear about these things. If you want to follow me, he says, you must first deny yourself, you take up a cross, and then follow me. He says, anyone who puts their hand to a plow and turns back is not worthy of me. He even goes so far as to say, if you love your mother and your father, your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, or your children more than you love me, you are not worthy of me. So the starting point for living in what appears to to be an increasingly hostile culture is for us to decide once and for all here and now I am going to do what Jesus teaches and I'm not going to back down. You need to make that decision because I'm pretty sure the world is going to continue to bully us. And today I want to make a second argument. The argument is this, the hostility that we face is and always has been spiritual at its core. And that means the kind of fight that we need to wage is a spiritual fight. I'm going to make that point throughout the lesson today, but I want to make sure you get it. And here's why. It's super easy for us to think about the struggles that we face as Christians in terms of politics and culture and social war issues, social justice issues, and so forth. So let me say up front, Politics matter a whole lot. Those of you who are involved in politics, we're really glad you are. We want you to be. I want Christians involved in politics. Politics matter. Politics are sometimes life and death issues, so they matter a lot. I don't want to diminish that. The culture wars are being fought for good reasons. There really is a culture war. Social issues are extremely important. I have said this before. I love my country. I am a patriot. One of my biggest regrets in life is that I did not serve in the armed forces. I feel like I owed it to my country to do that. I actually regret that. Having said all of that, I want us to make sure we understand that as Christians, none of that is our pri- primary struggle. Those are secondary issues. Our primary struggle is a spiritual struggle. It's a battle for the souls of humanity. Our primary battle is against the devil. It's not against Democrats and Republicans. Our primary struggle is not against our enemies. It's for the souls of our enemies. We don't fight against our enemies as Christians. We fight for our enemies. We fight for their souls. We fight to bring them to Jesus. We fight to help them see that there is a God in heaven who has a better way for all of us. And our motivation is not anger, fear, hatred, or rage. Our motivation is the truth of Jesus wrapped in the love of God. That's our motivation. And I just want to warn you, if we reduce this to a mere political cultural fight, we will miss what God has called us to do, and we will lose the fight. Let me just point a few things that go wrong when you reduce it to a political or cultural fight. First of all, it distorts our priorities. If all we're here to do is to argue for our candidate or our favored policy or against a $5 trillion uh, spending package as opposed to a $3 trillion spending package, at the end of the day, is that really what Jesus called you to do? It matters. I know it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I, what I'm telling you is when there are lost people all around us, isn't it a priority that we put the gospel first? Isn't that really our priority? In his book, The Great Influenza, John Barry's talking about the uh, Spanish flu of uh, 1918. He makes this really sharp remark. When you mix politics and science, you know what you get? Politics. Politics. <laughs> Some of us feel like that's going on right now when you mix politics and science. Well, let me give you my spin on that. When you mix politics and religion, you know what you get? Politics. You don't get a better form of religion. What I'm trying to help us to see is that our primary responsibility, our primary war is a spiritual war. We want to set people free from the bondage of the evil one. That's our primary objective. And if we don't, if if we allow politics, culture, and social issues to become primary for us, we will miss our number one job in life. You only have so much room in your mind for a priority. Pick the right one. Let me say second. If we reduce this to a political cultural fight, we will end up exchanging love, which is our motivation, for fear and rage. This is what happens. So next week, by the way, the sermon next week is PG-13. We will have a children's worship at uh, East and at West uh, up to fourth grade. Uh, I encourage you really strongly to consider that because next week will be PG-13. I have to tell you some of the stuff I'm going to bring up, thats sexual uh, material, some of it makes me angry. But at the end of the day, the anger of man does not accomplish the will of God. And so if we're only motivated by a fear of what those people are doing to us, or a rage against people who want to change our country. We're going to take back our country. At the end of the day, we won't win, and America won't either. I want to read to you a text. Ephesians chapter 6 will be our go-to text today, beginning at verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Let me read it to you so you get a sense of what kind of fight we've actually been called to fight. I'm going to put it up on the screen here behind me. Here's what Paul says. Our struggle is not against sin and losses, but against AOC, the Keystone Pipeline, and the policies of a political class that is ruining our nation. Stand firm then. With the belt of rage buckled around your waist and the breastplate of Facebook in place. With your feet fed, with the readiness that comes to, from hoping all your enemies will die. In addition to this, get out and vote because, and I can't say this loud enough, this is the most important election of our lifetime. And take the helmet of knowing that you are on the right side of history. And the sword of Twitter, which is the word of the outraged, and scream at unbelievers on all occasions and with all kinds of fury and accusations. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on telling everybody else that they are worse than Adolf Hitler. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. You know what? That's the Bible I think some of you have been reading. I think some of us have been reading that Bible. And somehow we thought, if we go out there and scream loud enough and call enough people Hitler, we'll win the world for Jesus. Guys, that is not our fight. That's not our battle. But that's often what results from people who reduce what is ultimately a spiritual war to mere politics And culture. And I want to say this too. When we reduce a spiritual battle to political and cultural fights alone, we miss the suffering of other people. This is really important. I believe Christians are being mistreated in North America. But if I want to make a credible case for treating Christians right, I think it's fair to say, well, where was I when other people were being mistreated? Right? If it's merely political, then I'm just going to defend myself. So, my black members, y'all forgive me for this. Indulge me. Wednesday of this week was the 58th anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. At least four men, white men, KKK members, in 1958, packed probably 19 sticks of dynamite in this black church. And at 10.22 or 23 a.m. on Sunday morning, while members were gathering, while four little girls were down in the bathroom changing their clothes, getting ready to come up and sing in the choir, they detonated a bomb and blew the church up, murdering these four little girls. And here's the thing. There were a lot of whites who stood up and said the right thing, but there were an awful lot of whites who belonged to an awful lot of churches in Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia, Mississippi, who said the wrong thing. Where were they when someone else was being mistreated? Why weren't they standing up? I just want to say, if I'll tell you why they weren't, because they were fighting integration. That's why they weren't. They had the political fight of their lives on their hands, and they weren't about to concede this thing because they were aiming for the wrong thing. And we don't want to be guilty of that. If we just make this a political, cultural fight, a social fight at the end of the day, we're going to miss the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Adam, if not in Jesus, all around us. It's not political at the end of the day. That's a symptom of the disease. It's real. It's a real symptom, but it's only a symptom. It's not cultural. That's a symptom of the disease. It's real. It matters. People suffer, but it's only a symptom. The disease is spiritual, And the cure must be spiritual as well. And my last thing, whenever we make it merely a political slash cultural fight, we take our eyes off the main prize. The main prize is winning the world to Jesus. I I love my country. I really do. But you all know there's going to be a day when the USA is in the ash heap of history and nobody even remembers it. That day's coming. There's only one kingdom that's going to stand forever, and that's the kingdom of God. So we want to steward this country. It was entrusted to us by God. But at the end of the day, only God's kingdom stands forever. So Joe Biden can promise you, King Biden will promise you a country with no malarkey. And I want you to know, I want to live in a country with no malarkey. I've made my mind up. King Trump can promise you that he will make us great. I'd love to live in a great country. That's what I want. But let me tell you what King Jesus says. King Jesus says, go make disciples. And that's the most important one of all. That is my decision that this is a spiritual battle. And my solution to a spiritual battle is always going to be spiritual. I'm going to make disciples. Winning souls is infinitely more important than winning a political battle. Here's a rule of thumb when you get into your small group. If you can't preach it in Brazil, don't preach it at North Boulevard. In other words, if it's not the universal gospel, let's not fight over it. Let's not fight over who gets to be president or four trillion or eight trillion or two trillion or ask yourself this question. Do you Would you like to have the ministers at North Boulevard go away for a retreat and come back and tell you what is the Christian position on forgiving student loans? What is the Christian position on Keystone Pipeline? The Christian position on extending uh, unemployment benefits? The Christian position on offshore drilling? The Christian position on climbing? You want us Would you like for us to go away and do that for you? Come back and tell you these are the positions you must take because we are your ministers and we know? And the answer is, please don't want that. You don't want that. By the way, I'll tell you, that's one reason why the liberal Protestant denominations are all dying. Go to their websites. That's all they're talking about. Go to the PCUSA website. All they're talking about is climate change and, 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 you know, gender issues and so forth. They're not even talking about the gospel. And we're not going to be that church. We're going to be the church that says no matter what the symptoms are, the disease is spiritual. And that's what we want to treat. Let's put it the way that Paul does. 2 Corinthians 4. Fix our eyes on what? That which is unseen, not what is seen. So let me put it this way. This is spiritual war. And make sure you know this. It's always been spiritual war. It's nothing new. So now let's look at Ephesians 6 again. This time, the version Paul wrote. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Against what? The devil's schemes. For our struggle. You know who was emperor when Paul wrote this? Nero. The guy who was going to behead Paul. And just a few years after this, the emperor beheaded Paul. Nero was a pervert. He was in a long line of Roman perverts. And what does Paul say? Our battle's against Nero. If we could just overthrow Nero. No, Paul says our battle's not against flesh and blood. That's not what we're struggling against. Paul understands Nero's a symptom. He's not the disease. The devil's the disease. Nero's in bondage. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, against the, uh, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the best way for us to look at those who would declare themselves our enemies is to realize they are in bondage to Satan. They're actually not our enemies. It's really important to remember the people who are bullying us as Christians. They've been blinded. You know what they need from us? They don't need to be compared to Hitler. They need the gospel. The gospel's the answer. And not because it works every time, because it doesn't. People have hard hearts. Sometimes the gospel doesn't work. We don't do it because it works. If you're saying to yourself, we've tried that, it doesn't work, you're asking the wrong question. We don't proclaim the gospel because it works. We proclaim the gospel because it's right. Because we do the right thing. And the right thing is to tell people there is a God in heaven who can help you become delivered from that bondage. Listen to how Jesus puts it. He talks about a spiritual war. When he talks about preaching the word, when he's doing this parable of the sower, he says, when some people receive the word, Satan comes and takes it away. He blames Satan for it. There's a spiritual battle. When Judas betrayed Jesus, what motivated Judas? You think it was money? Well, I guess maybe so. But what does Jesus say? Satan entered Judas. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says the God of his age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light. What is your goal then? To bring the light to them. Not defeat them in election. Elections matter. I care about elections. I want all the good people to be elected, blah, blah, all that. I'm for it. If you leave here saying David doesn't care about the elections or government or politics or so forth, then shame on you. You're misrepresenting me. What I'm telling you is those are symptoms Jesus offers a cure of the disease, and it's spiritual. Paul puts it this way. He says about all of us, that at one point all of us followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. He says that we need to be setting people free from deceiving spirits and things that are taught by demons. Here's how he puts it in this text. There are those who are being deceived and are constantly deceiving. And then he says opponents must be gently instructed. Not screamed at, like I'm doing at you right now, but you're not my opponents. Gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, so they will come to their senses and what? Escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Our top priority is to set people free from their bondage. We don't fight against our enemies, we fight for them. We're fighting to set them free. Besides North Boulevard, my favorite church is the Experience Church Cross town. <laughs> and my favorite minister, besides all the ministers on staff here, is Corey Trimble. And when uh, we get together pretty often and, and complain because that's what ministers do when you're not around. Usually we're complaining about you, but not all of you, just the bad ones. During the last election cycle, Corey was uh, kind of complaining. He's okay with my sharing this, right, Corey? Um, and he just said, he said, you know, here's my problem. He said, I got members of my church that will march up and down the streets, put their signs up, do all their rounds on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, and they won't get up off their lazy rear ends and walk next door and try to make a disciple of their next-door neighbor. And I thought, man, I wish I'd have said that because that's exactly right. Because the gospel says to me that the battle ultimately is spiritual. And my first and primary job is to set people free from bondage, not scream at them for disagreeing with me. Look at this woman. This woman's a drug addict. And I just want to say, don't you hate her? She's ruining this country. My son lives up in Eugene, Oregon, and it's an exaggeration, but it doesn't feel like much of an exaggeration. When you drive down the street of Eugene, Oregon, about every third or fourth store is selling marijuana. I mean, you can't, you hear about it here, until you see it, you can't believe it. You, every time where you park a car, you get out and then there's three cannabis stores all around you. They're ruining our country. She's ruining our country. And don't you wish we could pass more laws to punish her? We need to punish that woman a lot harder than we already do. How many of you feel that way? If I keep going, you're going to finally say, stop. Stop talking like that. Don't talk like that in my sermon. You know what this woman needs? Yeah, she needs Jesus. Laws matter. Laws matter. Politics matter. But this woman's in bondage. She needs somebody who loves her enough to get into her life and say, let me help you. I'm going to walk this walk with you. That's what we're called to do. That's our job. Those are the weapons we've been given. Not screaming at her. Not telling her, look what you're doing to this nation. She needs somebody to walk into the middle of her life and say, you and I are here until you have discovered Jesus or until you leave me. And I'm not going to back away. Since the battle spiritual, the weapons we use must be spiritual. And here's how Paul puts it. I've underlined these spiritual weapons that Paul brings up at the second part or the rest of Ephesians 6. Let me read it to you. Therefore, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that is when you find yourself being challenged by your son or your daughter or your HR department or your school or whatever it is, you will be able to stand your ground after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. Notice how many times he mentions prayer here at the end. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray for me also. Whenever I speak, words may be given me so I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Have y'all noticed a pattern here? These are our weapons. This is how we want to engage the world. Politics matter, culture matters. Sometimes it's life and death issues. But they are symptoms of the disease, and the disease is always spiritual. And therefore, the cure must be spiritual as well. Listen to how Jesus teaches us to engage our enemies. Therefore, I tell you, he says what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Guys, I think it's going to get tougher to be a Christian in North America. I really do think think some careers are going to be off limits to us. We're going to start losing some of our own children. They're going to turn against us because we won't bow down to whatever the sexual ethic turns out to be. Already, we've had members at North Boulevard who's had Facebook posts pulled down by Facebook because they didn't toe the line on secularism. It appears that it's going to get harder. So what are we going to do? We're going to pray on all occasions. We're going to bless those who persecute us. We're going to take the weapons of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to kick down the gates of hell. That's what we're going to do with it. That's who we are. That's what we do. The rest of the stuff is important. But you're a Christian. This is critical. Paul puts it this way. Don't take revenge. By the way, there will be justice. Don't worry. If it feels unjust, let me say it this way. If it feels unjust, don't worry because there's a just God in heaven and he's watching and he cares. But just remind yourself, he was watching you too when you were acting unjustly. So, I wouldn't ask for a whole lot of justice. Like, I'm not going to ask for justice when we get there to the day of judgment. I'm going to ask for mercy. I don't want justice. I promise you, I don't want justice. I don't want to be given what I deserve. But the second thing I want you to note is that Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, do what? Feed him. In doing this, you heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or as Jesus says, hanging on a cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm trying to suggest to us, this is really a spiritual battle, and we want to take the weapons of the Spirit into it. Let me tell you where it gets really difficult. Here are the three questions I've already been asked. These are very good questions. We're going to deal with these. In fact, uh, in one of the special teaching sessions, we're going to deal with some of these very explicitly. Here's the question. My adult son is living with his girlfriend in a sexual relationship. And they're living together, and they're not married. And he's essentially said he doesn't think there's a problem with this, and he's daring me to accept it. What do I do? I just want to let you know, most of us have something like that in our families. You're not the only one. Look to your left, look to your right. They've got the same issues. Here's the second question I'm being asked. My administration or my agent department, my boss or whatever, they're telling me I'm going to have to support something that I cannot support. What do I do? Like, that's everywhere. We're all facing that now, right? Except at North Boulevard, I'm not. But pretty much all the rest of you are. And here's the third question I'm being asked. Can I shop at Target? (laughs) Uh, In other words, do I support organizations that appear to be working against my values? I want you to know we're going to address those three questions and others as we work through this. Because all of us face them. But let me tell you the rules, the ground rules, the principles we're going to follow. They're already articulated for us in the letter to Ephesians where Paul says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to speak the truth in love. We're not going to back down on truth, but we are going to be the most extraordinarily loving people you've ever met. That's what we're going to do. Here's how John puts it when he's describing Jesus. He says about Jesus, the word became flesh, lived among us. We saw his glory full of what? Full of grace and truth. This is a difficult balance. It's a very difficult balance. In fact, one of the first places where we're going to want to do this is we're going to want to show grace for each other because your family member who's wandering off might have a different set of needs than my family member who's wandered off. We're going to have to be gracious towards each other and supportive of each other. But I do want to say this, if we leave either of these values off, we're going to fail. I want to make sure you understand this. Truth without grace ceases to be true. But grace without truth is poison. It kills people. So what we have to do is learn how to take a stand that is both honest and truthful and extraordinarily gracious. That's how we fight the spiritual fight. Use Paul as an illustration. Saul is out persecuting Christians. God shows a light to him. It's Jesus speaking to Paul saying, hey, guess who I am? And Paul's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I was... You're the guy I'm killing people over? And then he appears to Ananias, a guy living in Damascus, and God says to Ananias, there's a guy named Saul, I want you to go meet with him and pray over him. And Ananias is like, well, wait a minute, I've heard about this guy, you the one that's killing Christians? And the Lord says to Ananias, you got no idea what I got planned for this guy, Paul. Now, here's what Ananias could have done. Ananias could have said, Lord, I'm too busy. I'm out marching against the Sanhedrin. We have a protest this Sunday against the Sanhedrin. We've developed some flags. We're going to throw the bums out. By the way, I would have loved to have done that. But I just want you to know... That's not what God called Ananias to do. He said, I want you to go find the guy, lay hands on him, give him the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, this beautiful verse emerges where the Bible says, as soon as Ananias does that, what does Paul do? He went preaching the gospel. Listen, that was a better result than banning the Sanhedrin. That was better than the Sanhedrin. This morning we're sitting here reading Paul. You've named your kids after this guy. I'm just saying it really matters. Y'all have heard me talk about Rosaria Butterfield. She was supposed to come last summer. She was going to speak at North Boulevard. One of my favorite humans of all time. COVID knocked it out. So we're, we're still trying to schedule her. God willing, we'll get her here. She was a professor of English. She was a feminist professor and a professor of gay studies at Syracuse University. And she hated Christians. In fact, she says that when she, this is what she says. When you signed up for 100 of her classes, she announced at the beginning of class, if you don't take my position on these issues, it's an automatic F. And students just took her position. She found out Promise Keepers was coming to the Syracuse area. She decided to write a scathing article about how Promise Keepers was oppressive, patriarchal, all the stuff that you don't, you know, homophobic, I'll name it all. So she put out some news as she's writing the article, and she gets all this mail back from Christians. Some of it was really ugly. By the way, I heard Joe Dallas do a presentation. Joe Dallas is a. a guy who was a, lived a gay lifestyle was a gay activist for a long time, became a Christian, and now has a ministry. He's just a delightful ministry. And he said this, I want I want y'all to hear this. He said, every time Christians condemned us and told us we were going to hell and said roast in hell, you he said, that was the best thing that ever happened to us because it just confirmed in us what we already believed about you. So let me just pause and say this. Everybody in this room's a sinner. I am a sinner. If you're gay, if you're a lesbian, if you're struggling with anything, we want you here. We're all together trying to be like Jesus. So like, we're not about condemning, we're about trying to get everybody to Jesus. That's what we want, everybody. I'm a sinner, I couldn't name my sins, they're not pretty. So here she is teaching this, she's reading all this mail, shaking her head at Christians and she gets one sent by a pastor there in Syracuse, his name is Ken Smith. And then he says, hey, my wife, Floyd and I would like to invite you to come have dinner with us. We'll just have a nice conversation. And She threw it away. Then next day, pulled it out of the trash. Left it on the desk. I think she said she threw it away several times and kept pulling out. She couldn't get over it. And finally, she called him up and said, all right, I'll come. And she said it was terrible. It's terrible because they never condemned her. <laughs> they didn't even talk about uh, uh, sexuality. They didn't talk about church or sexuality. They talked about life, Syracuse, the park. They just talked about stuff. And she said, I went home and enjoyed it. And I hated it, the fact that I enjoyed it. And then she went back the next week. And then she, for two years, she would go over and she would take her friends with her. And they would talk about life and they would love each other. She said, after about a year of that, I found myself unable to avoid reading the Bible. As she was reading the Bible as much as five hours a day. And God was working on her soul. And finally, two years after that first invitation, Rosaria got up and told her partner goodbye for the last time. And she went and she was baptized into Jesus Christ. She's now married to a guy. They have a coddle of kids. She's a homeschool mom who bakes cakes for her next door neighbor. I mean, like her whole life is different. She now teaches and writes and she has found the joy of the Lord. But she would not have found that if all we had said to her was, You terrible person, you. I can't wait to pass a law to condemn you. That's not our fight. We've got the gospel. It's the same gospel that saved me from my sin. Why don't I want that gospel to be given to everybody, whether it works or not? I do it because it's right. Look at these guys. We'll end here. These are your next door neighbors. I just want you to look at these dirty pagans. Over there drinking. No telling what kind of values they have. Probably watch porn every night. Who knows what these, these dirty neighbors over here are doing. Man, I just can't wait to pass a law. To stop these dirty neighbors from doing whatever it is they're doing next door. Guys, is that who we are? This is the laziest form of Christianity, the kind that puts a Facebook post and a tweet out and never gets off your bum to walk next door and talk to them about Jesus. And if the word bum's a bad word, forgive me. It was better than the other words. That's a lazy form of Christianity. Look, if Jesus cared enough to raise me from the dead, then he wants me to go talk to them as well. I'm just saying, politics matter, culture matters. It's a life and death issue at times. But at the end of the day, they're only symptoms. The disease is spiritual and the cure is the gospel. That's the fight we want to fight. I wanted uh, Chandler Means' permission to share the letter from Agape that he sent out. So I called him this week. Marvelous guy, by the way. He, he said, he said, you know, the nonprofits, the Christian nonprofits are really having a hard time right now here in Middle Tennessee. Because if we don't toe the line on pagan values, we're getting cut off. But he said, you know, and he gave me permission to share this. They have uh, 85 children in foster care in Middle Tennessee right now that Agape is They have counseling services. The longest, did I say this already? The longest serving employee at North Boulevard is Nathan Jernigan. He's been here over 30 years. I've taught this lesson. This is my third time today, and so I don't remember what I said where. Anyways, I'm talking to Chandler, you know what he said? He said, we put this letter out because we've lost $50,000 that we've been getting for the last six years. He said, I'm fine if you want to share with the church that when we put this letter out, we've raised three times that amount from people who said, hey, we stand with you. I just want to say, this is what God is enabling us to do. And if you have a heart to help him, I'm pretty sure Chandler wouldn't say, no, no, we don't need any more. Go on and send him some more if you want to. Our fight is spiritual. Don't squander the limited time and the biblical priorities on secondary issues. The battle spiritual. Jesus is going to win. I hope that today's podcast was insightful and helpful in fighting the spiritual battles that are so prevalent in today's society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Real Life Theology.